Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is Wednesday of our group learning program, which means we're going to be doing breathing mindfulness meditation and helping you to deepen your practice. We come together on Wednesdays as part of our group learning program to either focus on breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, or Buddhist chanting. And we've been really focusing on meditation mostly because this really helps to train the mind. And we've done many classes over the last three or four months to walk you through this path to enlightenment using the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Enlightenment. And this is a book that you can download for free or you can get printed copies through Amazon if that's something that you like, or you can even just take the PDF and print it yourself. So this program on Sunday, we use the chapter of the book in order to do a full talk to help you further understand the content in the book and give you a chance to ask questions. And then on Wednesdays, we focused on practicing meditation or Buddhist chanting as a way to come together as a group, encourage each other, support each other, motivate each other, and help you to get any kind of insight on your meditation practice as you're building this consistent daily practice of two to three meditation sessions a day of 30 minutes or more. And you are just kind of slowly, consistently building that to help you along in building up your practice to better train the mind. Well, it just so happens that our class today is falling on a very significant holiday on the Buddhist calendar. Gautama Buddha was born it's celebrated that he attained enlightenment and his death all on the exact same day in terms of being spread out over the first 35 years where he was born and then he actually attained enlightenment at the age of 35 and then at the age of 80 he died but all on the same day during Gautama Buddha's lifetime they used to use the lunar cycles as a way of telling time so when he would give his talks he would schedule those based on the lunar schedule because all the farmers and all the rural people and people in his kingdom were understanding of the lunar cycles and were able to know that based on the cycle of the moon, he was giving a particular talk. And it tended to be about every seven to eight days that he was giving a formal talk where lots of people would come to learn with him. But then other times he would go around to village to village based on invitations of people inviting him to their village or going to people's houses if they invited him to their house. And this lunar schedule is how we mark this holiday of when the Buddha was born, attained enlightenment, and actually died. It's the full moon on the sixth 
lunar month. So that happens to fall on May 26th this year, but sometimes it's the end of May, sometimes it's the beginning of June. It all depends on the lunar schedule. So you'll see it fluctuate as it's impermanent, right? As we should understand. So the Buddha's enlightenment, while he never necessarily said, I attain enlightenment on this day, he talks about it as a gradual progression to enlightenment. We use this day as the day of kind of acknowledging his enlightenment. Perhaps that's the day that people during his lifetime kind of acknowledge that he attained enlightenment on that day. So in Thailand, we call this Wisaka Bucha Day. This is the Thai way of referring to it. But I think most widely people refer to it as Visca Bucha Day, V-E-S-A-K. But in Thailand, they spell it a bit differently and pronounce it a bit differently. Uh, so this is kind of like Christmas, Easter. And if Jesus had a point in time where it was determined that, okay, he's the Messiah, he's the Son of Man, if there was one date, I don't know that we have that. But this is kind of like that all rolled into one, where it's the birth of the Buddha, when he actually attained enlightenment, and his actual death. So it's all of these together all in one holiday. And what people will tend to do is they will tend to spend time with families, at least here in Thailand. They will spend time with their family, eating, talking, spending time together, which is kind of a common thing in Thailand every day. But then they will typically also go to their local temple. And each temple will have either a main building, a main structure, which we call a sala, or there'll be some kind of pagoda or what we call a stupa, and people will light candles, they will have lotus flowers, they will light incense, and they will hold them and they will walk around the sala or they will walk around the stupa or some other object. They will walk around three times, very calmly, very patiently, holding the incense, the flower, and the candle. And you'll see large groups of people, you know, thousands of people at a lot of these temples just calmly, patiently walking around three times. And whenever you see the number three in Buddhist teachings, it's relating to the Buddha, his teachings, and the community. In Pali, they refer to this as the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha, or the triple gem. So that's why they'll do it three times around in a circle. So if you guys have questions on this holiday, you're welcome to ask those now. I thought I would just share a little bit of it with you so that you understand a little bit of it because it is the most significant holiday as part of Buddhist teachings. I'm not sure that everyone was aware of it. So if you guys have any questions, I'll just open up to that through Facebook, YouTube, and Zoom. You can put your questions in the comment section and our moderators, Manal, James, and Basim will see that and get them asked during the class. And anyone in Zoom can electronically raise your hand. And then after we handle any questions, we'll just go right into our guided meditation. Hi, David. I was wondering what, if anything, this holiday has an effect on our practice. For me, I really don't pay attention to all these holidays. I think these are times where for people who maybe are not practicing so closely or not really close to the teachings, they might kind of use it as a time to kind of ignite their practice and get a bit closer to it. For me, one day is just the same as another day in terms of 
it's always the AFO path, practicing the AFO path. You know, there's no special thing that I necessarily do on this day other than to know that it's a certain day. I always have appreciation and gratitude and respect for Gautama Buddha for sharing his teachings and all the hard work that he did for 45 years to actually share his teachings and the effort that he went through to attain enlightenment on his own. That's an enormous amount of effort to be able to do that on your own. So I've always got gratitude, appreciation, and respect for him. And I imagine that most people who are practicing his teachings do because they know the real impact that the teachings have made in their life. But I think for people who maybe are farther away from the path or not as involved in the path, this can be a time to kind of ignite some appreciation and gratitude and respect. Maybe a time to go to the temple if you really aren't around the teachings very much. It's kind of like that one time a year you go to the temple. And if you happen to stumble into a talk by a monk who is doing a Dhamma talk or a talk on the teachings, or they're doing some meditation, or you happen to connect up with some other people that lead to you getting closer to the teachings, then that's all great. But for folks like us, I think that most of you guys are meditating regularly, daily, that you're reading the teachings, you're practicing the teachings, you're aspiring to continue to build your practice. I don't know that one particular day like this is going to be any different for you than any other day, because the idea is, is to bring the mind to the middle where you're practicing this Eightfold Path every day, every breath, every moment. And just knowing that this is when the Buddha was born, attained enlightenment, and died, I think that it just kind of acknowledges our master teacher for his dedication and commitment to sharing these teachings. Thank you, David. Let's go to Josh now has his hand raised. Hello, David. Um, I guess the one question I have is, is it normal or acceptable to wish someone a happy Buddha day as in the same way you'd wish someone a Merry Christmas or a happy Easter? I see a lot of people doing that online. There's no rules of what people should or shouldn't do. Some people try to look at the Buddhist teachings as rules, but I don't look at them as rules. I look at it as guidance and teachings that when you learn it, it leads to enlightenment. So there's no rules of what one can and can't do or what you should or shouldn't do. There's plenty of people who wish each other happy Buddha day or happy Visca Bucha day or the way that the Thais pronounce it, Wisaka Bucha day. So if you'd like to, you certainly can. And that's your choice, you know, as an individual practitioner. So there's some people who do that and some people who don't. I've never wished anybody a, you know, a happy Buddha day, but it doesn't mean that you can't. Other people do. So it really comes down to your own personal choice. Thanks, David. So it seems like in general, this is they can be a nice reminder for us to practice and to have an appreciation for the Buddha and his teachings. But beyond that, it's a day just like any other. For me, yes, it's, you know, all these holidays on the Thai calendar, there's 17 holidays here. Uh, so there's a holiday quite often, quite frequently. And there's certainly things like on Mother's Day and Father's Day that we do as a family. But, you know, even in terms of like Christmas and Easter and all these things, when I was living in the U.S., I never really celebrated them, not because I was anti-Christmas or anti-Easter, but it's just that 
our life practice should be our life practice. It should be the same every day that we should be uh, loving and kind and compassionate and generous and polite and kind, friendly, respectful. And the thing that I like about the holidays is that people are off work and you get to spend more time with family, particularly when I was in America around the holidays. It's really nice because things kind of slowed down and gave us more space to spend together as a family because that's really what all this is really all about, right? Is learning and practicing these teachings and training the mind is so that we can spend time with other people and enjoy our interactions with each other, not so we can do more work. You know, we create this optimized mind that's in the middle that has focus, concentration, deep memory, clarity of thought. Sure, that helps us in our profession and it helps us in our work, but I don't know that anybody would necessarily say that, you know, they're training their mind so that they can work more. You know, it's coming together with your friends and family and neighbors and other people. That's the real enjoyment of life, of interacting with other people in the world. And training the mind to do that is what this path is all about. And then the holidays that we experience is a time to spend time with family, which here in Thailand, they pretty much do all the time anyway. I would say 80% of your time, you're spending time with your family and friends. And there's just a little bit of work that people do in order to sustain their life and make sure they have money to pay for the things that they need. It's very common here in Thailand that if a certain restaurant sells out of their food by 10, 11, or 12 o'clock, they just close. Rather than run out and try to buy more food and make more money, they're just like, oh, okay, well, we made enough money today. Let's go home and spend time with our family. And that's what they end up doing. So I think there's a lot of that we can learn from that in Western culture because we tend to be work, 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 more money, more money, more money, more money. Where here in Thailand, they understand that that's not going to lead to ultimate peacefulness is the wealth generation. That's not what leads to a wholesome life. So they use their time wisely to spend with family and cultivating relationships with friends and other people around them. Yes, and speaking of Western culture, I think there's also a tendency sometimes in the West that when we do speak of religion, we speak of it on holidays or perhaps on Sunday, but it's not something that extends into our lives. And that seems to be what this Buddhist path is all about. It's an everyday practice that isn't confined to a specific day or a specific holiday. Exactly. And, you know, as more and more temples are spread throughout the world or as you guys become aware of temples in your community, I have a feeling that they probably hold events around this holiday. And considering this year it falls on a Wednesday, what you will typically see is, you know, the weekend before and the weekend after they will hold events typically in Western places here in Thailand on the actual day because they will be off. You know, the government closes on today, the schools close, you know, all those different things happen so that on the actual day people close. But in Western countries that are more based on a Christian calendar, they're not going to be closed on a day like today on a Wednesday. So as you reach out to the various venues in your community, the weekend before, the weekend after, will typically have some kind of events. And one of the things that I observe, like in America, is there's oftentimes in a place like LA where you live, James, there might be three, four, five, six temples that are Thai. 
And what they'll do is they'll kind of rotate. For like me in the Washington, D.C. area, we had three or four or five different temples. So for like the Thai New Year or certain major holidays, it would be one weekend at one temple, the next weekend at another temple, the next weekend at another temple, because it's the same people that kind of go to all these things. So they would kind of hold it at different temples and move it around. So you might see that if you're in Canada or America or the UK or other places that you might see them kind of coordinate amongst them so that the various community members can participate at one temple and have a really nice event, participate at another temple, have a really nice event the next weekend, and kind of share resources and help each other to host a really nice event. I was just wondering, David, what would these events typically consist of? Each venue is different, each temple is different, because it really depends on the leader of the temple. Uh, we call that person an abbot in English. In Thai, we call him praajan, which means like master monk. And each temple has a master monk or an abbot. And then all the other monks are kind of like his students. And the lay people that come to that temple are seeking guidance from that master monk. Just like you guys seek guidance from me as your teacher, that master monk at that temple would be the master teacher for that community and whoever chooses to go there whether you're ordained or a household practitioner are going to be learning from that person that person and the members of that community will decide what is going to be happening on a particular holiday and it really comes down to how deeply they are steeped in the buddha's teachings because a lot of places, they don't understand that there are no rites, rituals, ceremonies, and worship as part of the Buddhist teachings, and they might be really far away from the Buddhist teachings. So you might go into some of these venues, and they're doing rites, rituals, and ceremonies as part of this holiday with lots of chanting and different shamanistic you know, type things or certain folk traditions and things like this are going on. Or if you end up going to a temple where the master monk is really deeply steeped in the teachings and either enlightened or close to enlightened, you might see them doing talks on the teachings and actually sharing the teachings and helping the members of the community to learn the teachings and progress in their practice. Uh, so, and you can see a lot of things in between as well, depending on what people understand. For you guys, you're getting these teachings through the books that I share, the Developing Life Practice and these whole series of books that I'm now publishing, the 13 books. You would think that everybody in the world has access to this stuff. You would think that every temple would have the teachings of the Buddha like right there available for everybody. But in reality, that's actually not the way this works at all is you know the way that we think is we think about like the christian background where there's just one little book there's a bible and not only does every church have tons of them but they're also in every hotel room they're in airports they're everywhere well the buddhist teachings are big thick books they're 45 volumes of books and they're in a language that most people don't understand because it's no longer a spoken language so the reason why you see such a, a wide variety of things happening at these various temples is that not every temple has access to the teachings or has taken the time to 
find the teachings and bring them into their community in a way that's practiced in terms of being able to progress on the path. A lot of what's shared in these temples are just shared through the oral tradition of being passed down from one person to the next to the next over multiple generations. And this is how impermanence has uh, made its way into the teachings. And you see these uh, significant changes that people have made to the teachings. And this is why we don't see massive numbers of people attaining enlightenment in today's times, because through 2,500 years of oral teachings, people have kind of lost and gotten farther and farther away from the teachings. So what I've done is gone back to the original source and said, okay, I'm going to base everything that I'm doing in terms of my own practice based on what the Buddha actually taught from the actual source. And when I got these source books, I didn't believe anything that was in the book. I instead practiced it to see if it was actually true. So everything that I do and everything that I teach, it's in the Pali Canon, which is the original source teachings. I then practiced that to see that it worked for myself. I then shared that with students and then they're reporting that it's working for them. And then as I meet Thai people here and there in the community, they often ask me what I teach. And when I share with them what I'm teaching, they're like, oh, that's the same thing that we're learning from these really well-known monks that we know are enlightened. The community knows they're enlightened and we consider them to be enlightened. They're teaching and you're teaching the same thing. So I confirmed everything those four ways is from the original source text, from my own practice first to see that it actually worked. When I know that it worked for me, then I know it's going to work for the students. So I shared it with them and then Thai people confirm that, yeah, this is the same teachings that they know of as being the enlightened teachings and the teachings from the Buddha. But even here in Thailand, from temple to temple, you don't see the same teachings from one temple to the next. So this is why each event that you go to in a particular temple is going to be very different. In America and probably Canada and the UK, not only do you have kind of like a building that's going to have monks that are either chanting or sharing the teachings, they will typically set up vendors that will sell Thai food and they will have uh, Thai cultural dancing and traditional Thai music and things like this to bring a bit of the flavor of Thailand into places like California or Washington, D.C. or Florida or other places around the world that have Thai temples, they'll kind of bring some of that cultural stuff into the community. But here in Thailand, it's just lots of people showing up to a temple. There's usually monks that are set up somewhere providing personal guidance if anybody asks them questions or they might be doing a big talk. And then there'll be people that will be walking around the stupas or the sala in order to kind of acknowledge the holiday. So everywhere is very, very different depending on where you go. And the more you know about the teachings, you can observe that when you go to the actual temple, you can see how closely are they practicing based on what the monks are doing and based on what the lay people are doing or the household practitioners are doing. Thank you, David. Let's get back to Josh now. Hello, David. Um, I've looked at some of the temples in my area, and it seems that most of them are of a Sri Lankan origin. So I'm not sure which lineage of Buddhism they're practicing, if it's the Theravada or um, 
if it's different or if the teachings are essentially the same across all lineages? All the different traditions are very different. And even within the different temples, within a particular tradition are all very different. It really comes down to the master teacher at each temple and the community there that is gathered. Sri Lanka is a Theravada Buddhist country, but I'm sure there's probably Mahayana and Vajrayana Buddhism that are there as well. But typically, Sri Lankan temples are going to be Theravada Buddhist temples. But again, it's going to come down to how close the leader of the temple understands and is practicing the teachings. For me, I visited well over 200 temples throughout the America and Thailand. And out of all those temples, I only ever found one temple that's really practicing the teachings very, very closely to the way that the Buddha actually taught. And that's where these books, the Buddha Wajana books come from, is that temple. And that's the reason why they're practicing so closely to the Buddhist teachings, because they're going back to the source text where the vast majority of the temples that I ever visited, they're still living through the oral tradition. And this is why you see a lot of rites, rituals, ceremonies, folk traditions, things like this. But I would suggest to visit the places and see what you experience when you go there. Because you never know, depending on who is at that temple and what they're experiencing. And also, because a lot of these temples, they don't have ready access to materials, you can actually contribute to a community. You can actually come into a community, visit a few times, observe what they're doing, realize that they don't have access to texts and books and teachings that are close to the Buddhas. And since you do have that, you can contribute that to the community. You can actually bring these books that I am producing and share them with the master monk and the other monks that are there as well. And they would probably really welcome having these kind of materials because there's no centralized organization that's collecting the teachings and distributing them out to all these places. Everybody's kind of on their own to figure it out and do it on their own. And whatever master monk is at those temples in Canada, they're going to have some master above them, probably back in Sri Lanka, that they connect back to. And depending on how open they are to learning, I'm sure they're servicing other Canadians and those Canadians would probably be interested in, you know, these kind of books that I share. And that could be a contribution that you bring into the community. Thank you, David. That seems to be all the questions we have for now. Okay, so let's go ahead and do our meditation together then. So as we do each day when we're practicing breathing mindfulness meditation, just go ahead and take your position, whatever meditation position you like, either seated, lying or standing. We're just going to go right into doing guided meditation since you guys have been studying now for quite a while and have a bit of that background. So no need to really talk a whole lot about what we're doing other than to just actually do it. So once your lower body is comfortable and your upper body is nice and erect and your hands and arms are comfortable, just close the eyes and start breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. Nice, natural breath. Breathing in 
and out. Remember, your breath doesn't need to be synced up to the guidance that I'm providing. This is your independent practice. I'm just here to provide guidance and assistance as you seek guidance. So breathe in through the nose and out through the nose. Experiencing the full breath on the inhale, nice and steady, and the exhale. As you're working on establishing the breath, I'm going to start with some chanting just to ease us into meditation and then come back with some more guidance. If you're familiar with these chants and you would like to participate, feel free to chant along. Arahang Samma Samhoto Pakawa Huatang Makawanang Apiwa Theami Sawakato Makawata Tamu Damang Namasami Supatipano Mahakawato Sawakasanko Sanghang Namami Napmorhasabhakavato Arahato Samasamputasa Napmorhasabhakavato Arahato Samasamputasa Napmorhasabhakavato Arahato Samasamputasa Itipiso Mahakawa Arahang Samasamoto we charanang samuno sakato roka vito anu tero purisa dama sati satatawa manusanang Oto Pakavati OK. 
you should be breathing in through the nose and out through the nose. <clears throat> nice, steady, consistent breaths. The breath shouldn't be forced or controlled. Just a nice, gradual inhale through the nose, experiencing the full breath. Then transitioning to the exhale, nice and steady. Fixating the mind on the sound of the breath or the sensation of the air moving into the nose. Breathing in. And out. Breathing in and out with a nice gradual breath that is coming in through the nose slowly, experiencing the full breath, fixating the mind on the breath will slow the mind down. So breathing in nice and slow and steady, nice inhale, and exhale. As the mind wanders, cut that off, let it go. The mind goes to the past or the future, or if there's thoughts, ideas, or perceptions, just let it go and come back to the breath. You haven't done anything wrong. You're not bad at meditation. It's just that the mind is wandering. That's what it does. But you're training it to focus on the breath the present moment. So wherever you notice it's not on the breath, cut that off, let it go, and come back to the breath. Breathing in and out. Breathing in and out. You're not working on eliminating thoughts. You're working on quieting the thoughts. You're developing mindfulness or awareness of mind so that when the mind becomes aware that it's off the breath, then you're eliminating the craving, desire, attachment of the mind longing for the past, the future, thoughts, ideas, or perceptions. The mind is a master at craving, desire, attachment. You're training it to be in the present moment 
fixated only on the breath. Breathing in and out. Breathing in and out. I'm going to let you do this work of training the mind. I'm going to be quiet. Give you a chance to go internal to the mind and train it to stay focused on the breath. And whenever it's not there and you're aware of it, cut it off and let it go. You have nowhere to go. There's nothing to do. No one needs you right now. Just focus on the breath. Breathing in and out.
for about 30 minutes which is just about ideal just building up to a 30-minute meditation that starting from when I first went into meditation position including the guidance and the chants and everything but you know giving yourself a good 30 minutes per session is where you'd like to be and for any of you guys that are interested in kind of a refresher on breathing mindfulness meditation or loving-kindness meditation or chanting I recently created three playlists on our YouTube channel that one is got select videos and different things that I've done about meditation. Breathing mindfulness meditation is one playlist. Loving kindness meditation is another. And then Buddhist chanting is another. And you can go through those few videos that I put together in a playlist 
as a way of kind of ramping up your meditation practice. So that's something that is new that I've added into our YouTube channel just recently. So feel free to use those. And I think most of you guys know that now there's a link on our website that has all the books that I'm working on. And two of them are in pretty much final format and they can be downloaded from there or you can get the printed version. And the other ones are in a preliminary release. I haven't put my teachings and my thoughts into those other kind of 12 books or so or 11 books, but that's something I'm gonna be working on over the next uh, few years. And as I do, I'm going to be publishing them and I'll make sure that you guys are aware that a new book has come online. Right now, volume one and two are available and volume three is what I'm working on. So those will be coming out as we go kind of one book every three months or so is kind of the target that I have. So let me see if you guys have any questions about your meditation practice or the path to enlightenment or anything that you guys would like to discuss related to the Buddhist teachings. You mentioned, David, that 30 minutes was a nice time to aim for meditation. And I was wondering what it is about that time frame that allows it to be ideal, essentially. Yeah, the thing that I've noticed is my own practice, that 30 minutes is what really works well. Uh, when I've ever I've started out and I started meditating, you know, of course, I was meditating for a minute or five minutes or something like this. And that was what I needed at that point. That's where I was in terms of where my practice was. So a minute or five minutes, that's where you are. But then as you build, what you're going to notice is that you need more and more time to really get some beneficial results in order to train the mind. And what I noticed is the closer I get to 30 minutes and beyond, the impact and the results of the meditation session are enhanced. And I was also shared with me by Master V, who is an individual who is a friend of mine here in Chiang Mai. He has a master's degree in Buddhist studies, and him and I teach at the temple together quite a bit. And he said that he saw some scientific research where they were looking at CAT scans and MRIs, and they recommended that they noticed a difference from 25 minutes and beyond that the mind or the brain has a different effect. So what I've always observed is kind of 30 minutes and beyond, and then it looks like there's scientific research that's now being published that supports that. So that's what I recommend for people. But of course, you have to build up to that. And if you're at five minutes now, great, you're doing five minutes a session or 10 minutes a session or whatever it is. And there's certainly times where, you know, I'll sit down to meditate and as I start meditating, I'll be a few minutes into it and my son will walk in the room and maybe his mom left and didn't realize that I wasn't planning to take my son to school and I didn't realize she wasn't taking him to school and he'll walk in and say, Dad, I need you to take me to school. I was like, oh, okay. But I still feel like I got something in those three to five minutes. But you know, when I come home or wherever I go, I'm going to come back to meditation because I didn't get the full 30 minutes and I'm going to go back and start a session again. But even, you know, where I've sat in busy waiting rooms before and just closed my eyes for two, three, four, five minutes, there's some benefit there because it's accumulating the benefits of meditation. And I talk about meditation like a bucket of water and you're scooping water. And if the mind is thirsty and it really needs some water, 
you know, if you can scoop for three minutes, okay, great. You're going to be feeding the, the mine. Uh, but if you can get to 15, 20, 30, 40 minutes, okay, you're going to get a lot more water, a lot more benefits. And you're accumulating those benefits over multiple meditation sessions. It's not just that, you know, if you meditated 10 minutes in one session, then it's not like there is no benefit there. You are experiencing benefit and that benefit is accumulating, but you'll just find that there's more benefits the closer you get to 30 minutes and beyond. That's related to another question that was on my mind and I believe you've mostly answered it, but I was just wondering if we're in a situation where we have a very brief period of time, such as less than a minute or more waiting on an elevator, for instance, is it worthwhile then to go into breathing mindfulness meditation, would you say? I always suggest having a dedicated practice of two to three times a day where you're really putting time in your life and in your life practice to really dedicate to this active, purposeful, dedicated training session of the mind. So if you've got those in place and you just happen to be in an elevator and uh, you're looking to focus the mind and concentrate the mind and you close the, the eyes for 15, 30 seconds just to kind of focus on a, a few breaths, there's no harm in that. But just be sure that you've got your anchor points of your real dedicated practice where you're actually meditating. And that can be really helpful for you that if you're meditating consistently two or three times a day in a real dedicated practice, and then you're moving around your day, you're going in and out of elevators, or you're in an airport, you're traveling here and there, and you can just sit for two or three minutes or a few seconds, like you said, and focus on the breath. Those benefits that you're accumulating in your normal standard practice are going to come into that 30 seconds or that two minutes that you're experiencing, focusing on the breath and kind of clearing the mind and really bringing some concentration and singleness of mind to your day. Thank you. I have one other question. You mentioned in the chapter on meditation that it's much easier to cut off craving rather than to find our mind polluted with it and addressing it then. Well, if for some reason our mind has become polluted with it, what advice do you have in that situation? Same thing. You still need to cut it off and let it go. But the sooner that you catch it, the better. Because that's why we have the four foundations of mindfulness, which are being aware of the bodily sensations, being aware of the feelings, be aware of the condition of the mind, and then the mental objects. And as you go further and further into that, the mind is much harder to change and affect change. So like a mental object is some like ill will or hatred that's like so well rooted in the mind, like what we just experienced in our, our Zoom call, right? Like to uproot that anger and hatred that we just observed is going to take a lot more practice and dedication because it's been formed over many years of this being rooted in the mind. Whereas if, as you're working on developing your practice, if you become aware of the arising feelings sooner and sooner and sooner, when it's either just a feeling that comes into the mind and you can feel the frustration or you can feel the sadness or you can feel the boredom or the guilt or shame coming into the mind, that's better than affecting the condition of the mind or mental objects. But where you really would like to get to is where you observe the bodily sensations that 
prior to anger, for example, coming into the mind or prior to irritation or frustration or guilt or shame or boredom or loneliness or any of these discontent feelings that we uh, know about and that we experience and that we study about, there's going to be bodily sensations that are happen prior to the feelings actually coming into the mind. And you've got to tap into that more and more and more. And that's where your meditation practice is helping you to do that. And when you become aware of the bodily sensation and you start feeling just a little bit of heat in the feet or in the legs or in the belly, and if you can feel that bodily sensation, it hasn't polluted the mind yet and it hasn't become feelings and you can cut it off there, that's like ideal. And this is what the Buddha talked about, about cutting it off at the stump or obliterating discontentedness at the stump. Because when you cut it back sooner and sooner like that, observing those bodily sensations, you're getting closer and closer to enlightenment. And you're really making some great strides. Because we all experienced from birth until now, we experienced these bodily sensations, these feelings affecting the condition of the mind and forming mental objects in our mind. But we just weren't aware of this process that was happening. The Buddha's teachings make us aware of this process that's happening so that once you're aware of it, then you can apply the remedy or the antidote, which is applying right effort to eliminate the unwholesome qualities and arise wholesome qualities. And when you're training the mind to cut off, cut off, cut off during meditation, then in daily life, when you're experiencing those bodily sensations, that's where you can cut it off there. But if, if you didn't catch it there, and as you're saying, it does come into the mind and it becomes feelings, then work on cutting it off there. And sometimes it requires really moving the mind into a different environment. So let's just say like you're at home, you've been there for a few days and you start feeling boredom come in. You know, sitting there on the sofa and trying to cut off the boredom oftentimes isn't going to be effective. So what you may need to do is get up and go clean the bathroom and just change the activity or get up and go for a walk outside or get up and go grab a bike and go for a bike ride and just changing the activity rather than just sit there and dwell in the boredom, take some action, take the effort, use your that enlightenment factor of energy to get up and go do something. Or if you're feeling anger and you're in a conversation with somebody and you're starting to feel frustration and anger arise, if you can cut it off with bodily sensations, great, that's like ideal, but you might not be at that point in your practice. So what it might require you to do is say, you know what, Bob, give me one moment, I'll be back. Or give me a moment, I need to go address something. And you might just need to walk away from the conversation because maybe the conversation is arising anger in the mind and you're starting to feel it as bodily sensations, it comes into feelings, you know it's not being produced by Bob. Even if Bob is being hateful and vindictive and aggressive with you or whatever, you know that that's their practice, but you're allowing it to affect your mind. And if you notice that it's coming in as feelings, it's better to just completely walk away from that. And that might be what you need to do to apply right effort in that moment and use the enlightenment factor of energy to step away and that's what you need. As you practice more and more and your mind becomes more and more well-trained, 
you can sit there like somebody, I think uh, Josh and Donna asked me on Sunday, if somebody was yelling and hollering at the Buddha, no matter what they said or how they said it, an enlightened being can just sit there and not be affected by it whatsoever. But that's an enlightened being. You guys are all in the process of that. So that's where you have to have your awareness of mind and you have to understand where you're at in your practice and know that sometimes you you may need to just walk away from the conversation and that's the best thing to do in order to calm the mind and relax it and let it settle and that is part of cutting off the thoughts that's part of practicing right effort that's part of practicing the enlightenment factor of energy to move the mind away from whatever you're experiencing and you could also relate this to the Buddhist teachings on protecting your doorways to discontentedness, where the Buddha also described it as guarding your doorways to discontentedness, because discontentedness is going to come through the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the bodily contact, or the mind itself. So if you're in a conversation where you're hearing sounds, somebody's speech, and you're hearing things that are creating discontentedness in the mind you know that that's your own mind doing that and it's coming from this sound and maybe the best thing to do is just to step away so that you no longer hear that sound and that's part of protecting the doorways to discontentedness so there's ways that you can practice like this and then as the mind becomes more and more well trained then things just don't even affect you that happen i suppose that's also a great example of how there's no one answer and we have to, along with working with the teacher, investigate the ways in which our mind can address these situations, essentially. Yes, exactly. There's multiple solutions. There's always more than one way to practice. It's not this permanent fixed thing that if somebody says something hateful, you walk away, right? That's not always the best thing to do. If you try to create rules like we were talking about at the beginning i've never looked at the buddhist teachings as rules but if you tried to do that and you were just following a bunch of rules that if this happens i'll do this and if that happens i'll do this that's permanence that's the mind wanting that permanence so you've kind of got to have various tools that you employ at different times depending on what it is that happens so knowing that, yeah, you can walk away from a conversation and that's okay. That's a skillful way to not allow any anger that's arising in your mind to come into your speech and actions and cause problems through you speaking or having certain actions with that individual or multiple individuals that is going to cause problems for you later on. So in some cases, it's better to just walk away. In other cases, maybe your mind's a little bit more trained, you're more calm, you're trying to work on maintaining contentedness, you're working on cutting off the bodily sensations that you're feeling, and maybe you choose to stay right there in the conversation and just remain quiet in the conversation. In other cases, you might be further along in your practice and you've cut off the discontentedness of any arising frustration, and now you're going to try to have speech with loving kindness even though this person has just been utterly hateful to you and utterly disrespectful and you've caught it at the bodily sensations you've cut it off your mind's quite clear 
and calm. And now it's like, let me try to have loving kindness for this person who just did a very hateful, vindictive, disrespectful thing. Or in other cases, it might have been so hateful and so disrespectful, it doesn't even make sense to talk. All it makes sense to do is just move away from the situation. So that's where each individual situation is very different. And the more you create calmness in the mind, the more you have equanimity, the more that you have concentration, the more that you have this mindfulness and awareness of mind, you can access wisdom and make a decision in the moment that doesn't cause any harm to other beings. So therefore, it's not going to cause harm to you. So stepping away from a conversation typically is not going to cause any harm, but there's also other solutions as well. And you kind of have your bag of solutions that you might employ at any one given time. But the wrong thing to do in any given situation would be to speak with wrong speech or have wrong action or somehow be hateful or vindictive or you know, try to harm people just because they're being harmful. Uh, the, that would be the wrong decision. So there's lots of helpful and beneficial and wholesome decisions, but there's you know certain things that you would do that definitely are unwholesome and that you you know wouldn't do that uh, in order to ensure that you're not causing harm in the world. Thank you, David. That seems to be all the questions that we have for today. Okay. Well, thank you guys for joining. Really appreciate that you've decided to join for meditation and pleased to be able to share this holiday with you guys and a little bit of meditation. On Sunday, we're going to be in chapter 13 of the book, which if you've got the new book, that is the chapter on analysis of the mind and cultivating non-craving. So that's where we're going to talk about how to be aware of discontentedness as it's arising and to investigate the mind and uncover what your cravings are. Because so far, what we've talked about is we've talked about this general training of breathing mindfulness meditation and practicing generosity to kind of generally work towards eliminating craving, desire, attachment, the cause of discontentedness. But now what we're going to talk about on Sunday is like going in with a scalpel and like kind of going in with a microscope or a magnifying glass, putting the mind under a magnifying glass and really observing what are the craving, desire, attachments that are in the mind in any one given situation where discontentedness arises, and then kind of going in with a scalpel and kind of cutting that out and getting rid of it and eliminating it from the mind. So that's what the new chapter 13 is about. And uh, the title of that is Cultivating Non-Clinging, an Analysis of the Mind, Identifying Attachments. So that in the old book was chapter 12, Identifying Attachments, Cultivating Non-Clinging and Analysis of Mind. But in the new book, it's chapter 13, and I've added a whole lot more content to the new book to help you understand this more closely. So I'll see you guys either this Sunday for that or next Wednesday, we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation as a group. So have a lovely rest of your day and I'll see you next time. Sawadee Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. 
There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.